we are uh, in this new church merger, church marriage. Um, our purpose is to create community together and invite everyone into the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus, that is, that's it. That's a unique and specific phrase that we really landed on. And we want to take the next eight weeks to really explore what is the way of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Uh, what does it mean to uh, uh, be a disciple in my everyday life? And I, I think as we dive in and as we look at following Jesus practically, I think it's worth asking the question, as, as I've had and, and maybe you've had, or maybe this is putting words to that, uh, what value is there really in following Jesus? Like, what is the benefit? What, what can I expect my life to look like better, different, um, um, out of the, the, the usual or the status quo? What, what is the benefit to following Jesus in this day and age? Because it's, it's complicated. It's difficult to be a Jesus follower in our current culture. And I think we have to actually put our finger on, or at least start to, to uh, analyze and, and articulate, what is the benefit? Why are we Christians, those of us that, that would uh, claim to, to follow Jesus? Uh, the truth is, is that we're all following and we're all being discipled by someone. Even if we, we can't actively like articulate that in our everyday life, we are being discipled by someone or something. Some of us are being discipled by a Apple or maybe Android. Some of us are being discipled by Fox News or maybe CNN. Some of us by Coke or Pepsi or what have you. Like these choices that we're making to, to buy, to use, to sit underneath the, the influence of, we're being formed and shaped by those choices and by those influences. Certainly by the books that we read, the people that we hang out with, the people that we work with, we are being influenced by them. And we really need to be honest about, is there influence for the better or for worse? Is, are the people that we're becoming, because everyone is becoming someone, is the person that we're becoming more able to handle stress and anxiety? Is, is the person that we're becoming the person that God had in mind when he created us? And yes, everyone is becoming someone, even if you don't have a, a list of 10 New Year's resolutions or you don't have this bucket list, like you still are making choices to become someone, even if that choice is to not change at all. Because even if on, on the outward you're looking at someone and it doesn't look like they're making much movement in their life, they're still making internal choices that are shaping them. This is why when you meet people who are older, maybe in their 80s or 90s, it seems like there's kind of two choices. They're the people that are just so kind and loving and caring and other-centered. Like, those people are great, right? Hopefully you've got grandparents or the, your life trajectory is heading you in that direction. But there's also the choice, like the other extreme, and there doesn't seem to be much middle, middle ground, is that people who in, in their later stages of life that are, that are bitter and manipulative and cynical, and it's hard to be around people like that. It's life choices, everyday choices of life, of life, deciding what to be influenced by and how to respond to those influences that set us on that path even if it doesn't look very much different day to day or even week to week, I assure you, we're all learning and being discipled and being formed in to someone. The, the question is, do you like 
who you're becoming? Do you like that person? Do other people like to be around that person? So the question, what benefit is there to following Jesus? I hope that we can lay out over the next eight weeks the benefit of following Jesus to become the type of people that he had in mind when he created us. And that at the end of the day, we're more like him. We're more like him. Because when we look at the pages of scripture and we even look at like popular figures throughout history, I, I think most of us could conclude, and you know, we're, a lot of us claim Christianity as our primary influence in religion, so we're a little biased, but we're doing so because we look at the person and the work of Jesus and we say, ultimately, like there's no one else like him. And if everyone could be more like him, we would have a better world today, all right? Okay, so all of us are being formed by our choices and our external influences. So how, how, what does it look like to be formed by Jesus in this everyday life? I'm, I'm trying to frame this and hopefully set a context that we can look at the way of Jesus, what he is like and what he would have us do about it, okay? So the Gospel of Mark is what we're gonna turn to. We're gonna be in the Gospel of Mark for the next eight weeks. And this, this may f- uh, feel more like a survey or an overview of the Gospel of Mark because we're going to look uh, from the lens of spiritual rhythms and practices in the life of Jesus that he invites us to emulate. He invites us to follow him by doing these things, okay? So we're gonna look at portions of the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark uh, and the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark and what he has taught his earliest followers. So the Gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark, who was a follower of Jesus, but not one of the original 12 apostles. He, his account here in the gospel of Mark is taken from the, the eyewitness accounts of Peter the apostle and, and given to John Mark and written down, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the shortest of the four gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the shortest at 16 chapters, and it moves quickly through three acts. And at times, it feels like there's this quick transition where you were here, and now all of a sudden you're over here in the, and, and trying to keep up with Jesus. I, I can only imagine what it was actually like to be a disciple in the flesh with Jesus. Probably felt very like your head snapping around very quickly at times. And you kind of get that here in the Gospel of Mark. You've ever watched Star Wars and there's the quick cut and, and, and uh, to the next scene? That's what the Gospel of Mark feels like sometimes. There's the swipe and then you're in Boba Fett's palace or whatever, you know? And so uh, we're, we're gonna jump in at one of those swipes, one of those cut scenes right into the middle of the action in Mark chapter one, verse nine. And this is where Jesus' ministry begins to take off. At that time, so there's that phrase right there you want to pay attention to in the Gospel of Mark. At that time, it's kind of like, and suddenly Jesus did this. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John, John the Baptist, in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So actually right just as a a tangent uh, uh, observation, this is why Christians right here, uh, uh, moments like this, this is why Christians worship God as Trinity. We see uh, uniquely in action the three persons of the Trinity, each co-equally in essence, fully God, uh, we see them show up in the pages of scripture at the same time. So that's kind of a cool and unique situation there. 
At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days. So the wilderness is a key theme. We've actually seen it already pop up in the Gospel of Mark. If you started from the beginning where John the Baptist goes into the wilderness, Jesus now is in the wilderness, and we'll see him in the wilderness here in a little bit uh, uh, as, we, as we read on. Being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what we see here in, in a little background to help us fill in and understand what's going on here is that Jesus was an itinerant preacher of the good news of, of God's king, kingdom coming to earth. But not only was he a preacher, a herald, he was also a teacher that helped uh, the Jews understand their sacred texts and, and, and become more true and more, more uh, aligned in their understanding of what God is trying to communicate to them. So in their language, these teachers were called rabbis, which is a favorite term that Jesus' followers call him as they're asking him questions. Rabbi Jesus or Rabbi Yeshua in, in the original uh, Hebrew. And rabbis were recognized as masters, teachers of the Torah, of, of the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. You've got the Torah or the uh, five books of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. And uh, they were often asked to weigh in and give their uh, perspective or their commentary on what God is teaching and, and trying to invite the, the, the Jews into uh, as they worship in everyday life. So that's called, their commentary is called the Midrash. And these scholarly teachings were passed down through generations concerning how to interpret Scripture correctly. So in the Gospels, Jesus was often asked about traditions and how different teachers understood the text. He would often reply with his own clarifying thoughts, saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So you hear Jesus saying that often because he's clarifying and he's realigning. And there were these famous rabbis that would, that would kind of itinerate all, all over Israel. Uh, even uh, Rabbi Hillel was... The, one of the most famous ones, and the peak of his ministry was only about 50 years right before Jesus' ministry. So that's fresh on their mind, and they're wondering from these different perspectives where Rabbi Jesus falls in, in, in the Midrash in alignment with that and in agreement or not with these different rabbis, these different master teachers. In doing so, Rabbi G Jesus, Rabbi Yeshua, was teaching his apprentices the way of the kingdom of God. So knowing this helps us understand what comes next in our text and why people responded to Jesus the way that they did. Continue on in Mark. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. Simon will later be, become known as Peter, by the way. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he, they, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and brother, his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So in the early days of his ministry, Jesus begins inviting people to come follow him as he travels around Israel. Uh, and they would go and they would learn from him as apprentices or as disciples, as followers, as learners to a rabbi, to a master teacher. Actually, the ter term disciple means learner, someone who would take and apply the teachings of a rabbi. So what's unusual about Jesus' methods is that often rabbis would just walk around and teach 
in, in different synagogues and different you know, situations and crowds, and, and their followers would follow the rabbis at their will. But Jesus actually uniquely, and he, you know, as, he, as Jesus does, tips the apple cart, by he invites people to follow him, which is quite a reversal of their tradition and their culture. So from the beginning, Jesus is already kind of disrupting things as he does. And so what Jesus asked for, when he calls them, he calls these two, two sets of brothers who are fishermen, he calls them to commit their entire life to follow him. Uh, what he, Jesus asked for is a to, total commitment of their life and their attention so he can pass on his teachings to them. So make no mistake, this was super disruptive to their families. Their, their families were probably uh, not quite poor, but not quite wealthy. They had uh, a flourishing business where these two families may have been in partnership with each other, and there was enough money flowing that they actually could hire uh, several hired hands to carry on the work of the business. But what happens in the early days is that a father would, would teach his son the, the trade of whatever that he's doing, in this case, fishermen. Uh, and they would learn and then t- learn to take over the father's business. So when, when sons took off to do something else outside of the father's business, this was pretty scandalous in an honor-shame culture. And so what we see is something very disruptive as two sets of brothers, two brothers from each family, take off outside of their family business to go follow Jesus. Now, the thing that balances this is that being called by a rabbi, invited in to follow a rabbi was a, a, a very high honor thing for, for a, a family in that age. So what happened is young boys would learn uh, the Torah in, in their school, and they would actually memorize the first five books of the Bible and have that uh, ready to, to interact with their teacher. And by age 13, all of, that, all of that, uh, the Torah should have been memorized by them. But only the, the cream of the crop, the, crop the, the top of their class could go on and continue learning in school. The rest were told to go and learn the trade of their father. So these two sets of brothers weren't the cream of the crop. They weren't top of the class. They were flunk outs of Torah school, unfortunately. And so when this rabbi comes by, it basically gives these two sets of brothers a second chance on maybe what could have been a lifelong dream, certainly something held in high esteem. So Jesus call, first calls people, but he doesn't call people just from the top, uh, you know, having the right last name, having the right pedigree, having enough money in the bank. He calls basically the losers and the burnouts and the people on the fringe of, of culture and of society. That's who he calls to give a second chance to, 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 to what they want to do and what they see themselves doing in their life. And that obviously continues for us today, honestly. Jesus doesn't just call the rich and the wealthy, and it actually in the, in the scripture says, not many noble were called, Paul says to 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the, the church in Corinth. Uh, he calls people from all walks of life, but it just seems that God has a, a special place for those that are in need, those that are broken, those that on the, on the fringe, those that need second and hundredth chances, right? So... Jesus represents to them something really huge, an opportunity, a second chance, right? So a disciple of a rabbi, which is why they drop their nets like on the spot. They don't need a week to go and pray and fast about it. They drop their nets on the spot and decide to follow Jesus. And they understand the radical nature of discipleship that this rabbi is calling them to. A disciple of a rabbi would commit to do three intense things, to be with their rabbi 24-7, 
to be like their rabbi, to learn all the things that the rabbi is doing and, and to, to, yeah, to, to do the things that the rabbi does. So it's learning, not just for memorization or not to just win like a scripture bowl trivia contest. It's actually to learn the scripture and learn from their rabbi so they look like their rabbi and they are able to do the things that the rabbi does. Brad Young, in his book called Meet the Rabbis, says this, the disciple is willing to endure hardship for his learning experience. In rabbinic literature, the disciples of the sages neglect their business and sacrifice much to acquire Torah learning. The disciple is expected to serve his master teacher in caring for professional needs. By serving the master, the disciple learns how to conduct his affairs in everyday life situation. He listens to his master's teaching while doing menial chores to assist his mentor. Torah learning is evidenced in behavior and a rich spiritual life. The disciple walks with God by living out in practice the teaching of his rabbi. So this may seem foreign and a bit extreme if we're honest, if we're candid, that someone would drop their nets, give up their, their livelihood, risk dishonoring their family to go and follow this, this unknown rabbi now. If we're used to discipleship being about things that we study and only about facts that we memorize, then yeah, it's really confusing, right? But throughout church, most of church history, if someone wanted to follow Jesus, if someone got connected to a church or met a Christian out in, in public and said, I'm interested in this Jesus, how do I learn to follow him? How do I learn about him? They would meet with someone older in the faith and that person who's older in the faith would teach them the ways of Jesus. They would teach him about the things or her about the things that Jesus did and invite them to mimic them in their own lives. It was, it was learning unto action, okay? They would follow Jesus by doing the things that that disciple had learned from their discipler on down and that they had learned to, from Jesus. But for us, discipleship in, in kind of our American, Protestant, evangelical, even world carries a different meaning depending on our experience with how it's done. In fact, I, uh, in, my, in my early 20s when I was new to faith, I, I, uh, I knew I, I wanted to learn a lot about Jesus. And so I went to an older guy uh, in his 50s or so and I said, hey, would you disciple me? Because that's what I heard a lot of people around me. They would go, hey, will you disciple me? And he goes, no, I will not do that. And he like loved Jesus and knew the scriptures, but he had grown up, uh, come to faith in the seventies during what was called the shepherding movement or the discipleship movement. Hardly any of you know, have ever heard of that, but it was this like high control, like the person that discipled you basically like set you up, blessed off on your you know, work transition or who you're gonna date or marry. It was very high control and, and unfortunately manipulative in some situations. And, and that guy had been through that movement and said, I will never disciple anyone again in my life. But you can come hang out with me and I'll teach you everything I know about God and the Bible. I'm like, okay, that, I think that's what I'm supposed to do anyway, so let's do that, right? So discipleship can be a loaded term. In fact, uh, it looks really different if it's all about memorizing facts. In fact, I mean, I know some of us have, have done this or maybe you come up, came up in a college ministry where discipleship means meeting with someone an hour a week and you see them both huddled over the Bible in a coffee shop and maybe there's some accountability questions, but usually it's only one way. It's never really mutual, right? And, and so if that's our idea of discipleship, this whole life, drop your nets, give, give everything to Jesus sounds pretty radical and extreme. It's like, well, I was just trying to go to church and maybe hang out in a Bible study once a week. Jesus wants more than that. Well, disciple is a loaded term then for us. 
It's a loaded term which comes from a Latin translation of a Greek word referring to a Jewish practice. So yeah, we might be off a few degrees when we look at our discipleship, if we even had any kind of discipling, and what Jesus meant by calling disciples to himself to come follow him. And so perhaps a more adequate term for us that matches the practice of Jesus is apprentice. Maybe not to necessarily drop disciple or discipleship, but maybe to clarify and to maybe kind of get out of this westernized kind of thinking about facts and memorization. And hear me, that's not bad. I meet almost weekly with a, uh, a few men and we pour over the Bible and talk about God. Like I am, I am so for that. But discipleship is so much more than memorizing facts about God. Uh, because how many of you know, you may not actually get around to looking anything like Jesus or doing anything that Jesus does if it's all about memorizing scripture, right? It's at least that, it, it's at least that, but it's always so much more than that, okay? So, but maybe we should get back to this term apprenticeship and apprenticing Jesus because we know what an apprentice is, right? We, we're familiar with trade schools that, that, that teach in the classroom but always connect someone to a master plumber or a master electrician. So that that apprentice electrician is going to learn how to rewire a house and is going to go get licensing and probably, you know, join a union and, and have a community of people around them. No one, in other words, would, would trust like your neighbor's friend, Joe, who watched a couple YouTube videos and listened to a podcast and read a book one time to come and rewire your house, right? Like we wouldn't do that. We, you, actually, we have, we have a phrase for that. You pay for what you get, right? Like you would pay, you, or you get what you pay for. Sorry, I totally backwards. You get what you pay for in that situation. Now, I love YouTube videos. I've held two cars together with duct tape with YouTube. Not really, but you know, like YouTube can be super good. But when we're talking about following Jesus and we're talking about learning from the master rabbi, right? It's gotta be more than reading in a Bible facts to, that happened 2,000 years ago and that is what takes us to maturity. It's so much more than that, okay? So, uh, what if we understood apprenticeship to Jesus as doing these three things? One, being with Jesus. Jesus called his disciples, actually later on in Mark, when he, he calls the 12 specifically, he's, one of the phrases that's used is he called them so that they would be with him. The, the number one activity, the number one goal, the number one task of, of an apprentice is to be with the master, to have a deep friendship and connection, to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, to look more and more like Jesus, to, to use the words that he would use in conflicting situations, to respond to people, to uh, have our speech uh, colored a certain way, certain tone, certain mannerisms, to, to be uh, like Jesus in all the ways as our years go on and go by. And then third, to do the things that Jesus did. That's it, right? That's super clear. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, we're, like, we're with Jesus, we're like Jesus, and we do what Jesus does. It's super clear, but it's far from easy. It's very costly to commit your life to following Jesus in this way, to apprentice Jesus in this way, though means to be with the master, to be like him, so that ultimately we can do the things that he does, right? And it will take us a lifetime to achieve mastery. Okay? So the entire point of the Christian journey 
we're on is to do these three things under the leadership of the master rabbi Jesus. So where this might conflict is that when we equate discipleship and church again to memorizing facts, memorizing facts is good. I have my sons doing that right now, memorizing facts about God. What's interesting though is that if you, if you go to a seminary right now and ask the question and, and teach about God or talk about God, oftentimes they'll tell you what God is like. They'll tell you that he is omniscient, he is um, omnipotent, all, all the omnis basically. He does all the things. That's what God is like. He's always good. He's, he's, uh, his will is always good, et cetera, et cetera. But if you go to an Orthodox Jewish seminary or learning center, they'll tell you what God does. And, and they'll use often metaphors. God is like a feather. God is like bread. God is like the wind. To paint a word picture of what God does, which is why if you, if you flip over a couple books in your Bible to John, J- Jesus gives eight I am statements. And none of them are about, I am always good. I am always kind. I'm all knowing. It is, I am the bread of life. I am the w- living water. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. He gives metaphor like a good rabbi teaching Jewish people what God does. And through that, that's what he's like. So we have, to, we have to hold on deeply to everything good and right and true and beautiful that we know about God, but let it sink to the core of our hearts so it gets into our behavior, so we become like him and we do the things that he does, okay? So, um, and, and this, is, this is not revolutionary. I, this is probably not new information for most of us, but we have to be reminded often that this is exactly what Jesus said. So in the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually bookended by this exact command to put teaching into application, into practice. And that's when you know you actually know it is when you're living from it, when you're actually doing it. In Matthew 5, 19, he says this. This is the Sermon on the Mount, the collection of Jesus' best teachings about what it's like to follow him and live in the kingdom of God. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, it's doing what Jesus did, not just knowing about him. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, you know this word picture, but it's just good to um, you know, remember it and, and go over it again. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came uh, down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So then... Every week, what we want to do, as we read about the life of Jesus, we want to point to a specific practice, to put this into practice, to actually do the things that Jesus did as we're with him and as we're learning to be like him. So our first practice, uh, and it's, it's kind of twin practices because some of these overlap, is prayer and solitude. So I want to point from the book of Mark at Jesus practicing prayer and solitude. Now We find that in verse 35 of chapter 1. It says this, very early in the morning... While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his, and solitary is also the word for wilderness, actually, there too. Jesus has a special connection. And, and early church fathers and church mothers and people throughout church history, the wilderness is a place of encounter. It's a place of aloneness with God. 
Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So Jesus' life was an ebb and flow of of solitary time with his father and then outward public ministry. So where, like it says here, people would often go looking for him because he got away from the crowds. He got away to go be alone with his father, to to practice solitude, to practice prayer, to be in his father's presence and, and receive rest and rejuvenation so he could go and pour out into other people's lives. Okay, We need to remind ourselves that Jesus... Being fully and equally God as his Father and the Spirit was also fully human, which means he embraced human limitations, that he needed to sleep, he needed to rest, he needed to eat and drink and and replenish and rejuvenate. So he had enough energy and enough centeredness in, in his identity as his Father's Son so he could give that away to other people. We need to be reminded that if Jesus embraced limitations so too, and how much more so do we need to embrace our own limitations? You see, I think like as many of us, and and I've talked about, as many of us have, have noticed, and I've even talked about, burnout is on the rise. Here's what I think a lot of burnout is. Ignoring your human limitations. To think you can do more, or buy more, or go more places, or read, you know, scroll more, or do whatever, and ignoring the fact that we actually need some downtime. We need to reconnect with God. We need to be in the Father's presence and hear the now word for us that brings rest and rejuvenation in in a solitary place before God. Now, not all burnout is like that, but I think a lot, a lot of it is just trying to pack too much into an already busy life. So Jesus lived within these material boundaries, and because he paid attention to those boundaries— He paid attention to the movement of the Spirit that would drive him out into the wilderness, into the solitary place, to be alone with his Father through the Spirit. I'm just persuaded he had more energy for the ministry activity that he was called to do. Thank God Jesus did not ignore his boundaries and burn out until he made it to the cross. He paid attention to it. And he did it joyfully because it's what connected him deeply to his Father. So the practice of solitude is an invitation to us, extended by God, to get alone with him and allow his presence to refresh us, to break our relationship to hurry and busyness and allow God's priorities to become our own priorities. So Thomas Kelly, I'm I'm going to quote from three books. I think any one of these are fantastic books if you're wanting a resource or more reading into prayer and solitude. So the first one is Thomas Kelly, A Testament of Devotion. We feel honestly the pull of many obligations and try to fulfill them all. And we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful. We shall be shallow. For over the margins of life comes a whisper, a faint call, a premonition of richer living, which we know we are passing by. Strained by the very mad pace of our daily outer burdens, we are further strained by an inward uneasiness. Because we have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence, a life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. If we could only, if we could slip over into that center, if only we could find the silence which is the source of sound. We have seen and known some people who seem to have found this deep center of living where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where no as well as yes can be said with confidence. We've seen such lives integrated, unworried by the tangles of close decisions, unhurried, cheery, fresh, positive. 
These are not people of dallying idleness nor of uh, obviously mooning meditation. They are busy carrying their full load as well as we, but without any chafing of the shoulders with the burden, with quiet joy and springing step. Surrounding the trifles of their daily life is an aura of infinite peace and power and joy. We are so strained and tensed with our burdened lives, they're so poised and at peace. So the call to solitude is a call to refreshment in God's presence, but it's also an invitation to be transformed in the midst of God's presence. Henry Nouwen, In the Way of the Heart, this this is a phenomenal book. I read this book maybe like once a year just because I need to be reminded often of its contents. He says this, solitude is thus the place of purification and transformation, the place of great struggle and great encounter. Solitude is not simply a means to an end. Solitude is its own end. It is the place where Christ remodels us in his own image and frees us from the victimizing compulsions of the world. We are called to solitude where we can struggle against our anger and greed and let our new self be born in the loving encounter with Jesus Christ. It is in this solitude that we become compassionate people, deeply aware of our solidarity and brokenness with all of humanity and ready to reach out to anyone in need. So solitude isn't simply like a bonus for introverts to go crazy and just be alone and think their thoughts, think our thoughts. Solitude is a place of refreshing, but it's a place of struggle too because our our false self comes down. When God is not impressed with who we've built ourselves up to be, but actually wants us to get in tune with who he's created us to be, our false illusions of all that stuff gets challenged. So it's it's a place of wrestling in God's presence with God and with the quiet, right? But it's, it's so enriching. My, just, just so you know how it, it happens practically for me, my experience of solitude, uh, yes, I am introverted, but I've, I've felt a call to, to, to solitude for years now. And I, I wouldn't say I do this perfectly every single day, but if I get maybe four out of seven days where I can, do, I can get up in the morning and first thing be alone and quiet with God, uh, that's a success for me. Um, what I do is I, get, I usually get up and I wake my kids up and, you know, it takes like 15 minutes for them to even like uh, revive themselves. But I get up early in the morning when the house is still quiet and I just sit. And yeah, oftentimes I'm still half asleep. I'm not really a morning person. So I'm not going for like, I'm going to make it and watch the sunrise. That's never been me. If that's you, respect, but you do you. I'm, I'm not that much of an or, a morning person, but I'm a quiet person. So I like the quiet part of the day. And for just 10 minutes, as the house starts to stir, I'm alone with God. It's before I turn on any screen. It's definitely before I check social media or email. Uh, it's before I even open my Bible. I'll have my Bible there. I'll have it ready to go on an app. But I just sit with God and I listen. I just listen. And I want my heart to be centered on him. So uh, a lot of times he just listens to me as well. It's a listening session and it's really great. Sometimes I'll get an impression or I'll sense like a deeper sense of joy or gratitude or peace, but it really is 10 minutes sitting with a friend. That's my regular practice of, of prayer and solitude. It's not fancy. I'm not gonna write any books about it. It's super simple, but it is hard when there are so many other things calling to me, to be opened, to be responded to. 10 more minutes of sleep some days just sound like magical, right? But that's what I've done. That's what I've chosen as a posture to sit alone with God and be present in his presence. 
Now, like I said, I'm a lot of times half asleep or I don't quite make it the full 10 minutes or sometimes it's 30 minutes and that's wonderful. Hey, you just never know. Sometimes I have a, 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 one of my boys gets up and like curls next to me and starts with 20 questions first thing in the morning. You know how it is, parents. So you just have to roll with that and know that God is not put off with it because there's always tomorrow or there's always later in the day because what happens as my heart is centered on God I find throughout the day moments of returning to that place. It, it's really unusual, not unusual, it's, it's really unique. When I feel like I'm in a hurry, I'm distant and I'm distracted from God's presence. But when I start my day centered on God, I can return to that place often. I can find instead of mo- like moments of boredom, even in a checkout line at the store, I'll just, my heart's attention will return to Jesus. Jesus, what are you doing right now? Do you have anything to say? I'll find moments where I'm reading or where I'm doing something and I'll just, I'll shut my laptop and I'll just sit with God throughout the day. And it's just these little mini moments, guys. I'm, I'm not taught, you know, if you feel called to the desert to live in a cave like the desert fathers and mothers, go for it. But if you're looking for a desert experience in the everyday hurry of life, it really has to be grounded in a regular practice of prayer and solitude. You just practice with an open hand where you meet with God in his presence and you're present with each other. Um, so Brother Lawrence is this 17th century. He wasn't even a monk. He was like a helper at a monastery in Paris. He wrote this book called The Practice of the Presence of God. I, it's fantastic. You can buy it for like 50 cents at every bookstore that I've ever been in. So pick this up if you can. It's really wonderful. And it's, he was this, uh, this helper. He did the dishes at a monastery, basically. So he didn't really keep a lot of the regular hours that all the brothers did. But what he did was, instead of um, being, being um, uh, chained to like that, that time or that whatever, or going to a certain place and doing this, he actually worshiped Jesus while he was doing the dishes. And this little book are just letters he would write uh, to encourage people about them seeking God's presence as well. And so what he found was when he cultivated this this inner place of solitude with God, he could take that wherever with him where he went. So he writes this, you don't have to pray out loud. He's nearer than you can imagine. It isn't necessary that we stay in church in order to remain in God's presence. We can make our hearts personal chapels. I love that. Our hearts personal chapels where we can enter anytime to talk to God privately. These conversations can be so loving and and, and gentle and anyone can have them. Is there any reason not to begin? He may be waiting for us to take the first step. Gradually train yourself to show your love for him by asking for his grace. Offer your heart to him at any moment. That's what, when you cultivate a space of solitude and a regular rhythm, what you'll find is you can take it with you. Now, here's the thing. You can't do this on the run first. It always takes a, a, a discipline or, or a, a rhythm where you're intentional about it. But then from there, it spreads out. And God is quite gracious to allow it in different situations to do that. So I know, though, like a lot of us may be thinking, you have no idea what my life is like right now. And I, and I don't. I, I don't. You're probably going, I have, like, my kids are up at six. There's no way I'm getting up early to cultivate time. Like, I get it. I get all the things. And I don't know the perfect solution. I don't think this is perfect and tidy, and I don't have three steps to increase the presence of God in your life. It doesn't really work that way. What it takes is a hungry heart. That's what I know. It takes a heart to say, God, I don't know how this is going to work with my schedule and my craziness and all the things that I have to do. 
but if you will make time, I'll meet you there. It may just take that. Like, I want to say yes to this, God, and I'm willing if you can help me out. That's, that's my invite to you. And, and as we go into these practices every week, what I want you to understand is we're not trying to pile more stuff on a busy life. This is actually an invitation for you to dial down and maybe pull back from a few things to follow Jesus, to practice these things intentionally and regularly so you, you develop habits and rhythms just like Jesus did. So there's no guilt or no, there's no shame. Here's my invitation. Begin where you're at. That's all you have to do. Begin where you're at with what you got, okay? So our practice this week is prayer and solitude. And I've got three different kind of tiers or there's no, there's no best tier. It's just there's beginning, there's baseline, and there's stretch. Wherever you find yourself on the journey with Jesus and wherever you're at in this season of life that you're in, hopefully there's a step that you can take to practice prayer and solitude. So a, a beginning step might be this, finding 10 minutes sometime in your day to, to be alone with God. And if you need to, if your mind is wandering, if you just can't seem to get focused, maybe you recite a prayer like Psalm 23 or you journal a little bit on, in, in a notebook or some paper to get your mind focused. That's baseline. I think, I think most of us could find 10 minutes sometime during the week to do that. Okay, A baseline, like our dream would be everybody makes it here. We think just our church could be radically different and, and, and more you know, following Jesus more practically and intentionally, if everybody just made 10 minutes each day mingled in silence within that solitude. And then if you're like, yeah, I've been following Jesus for a while and I got this and this is kind of boring, you know, woohoo to you. But anyway, a stretch goal might be 30 minutes of silence and solitude first thing every day before you turn on a phone, reply to a message, even open a book, okay? So hopefully, and I'll have the worship team come on up. My hope for you is, again, not that you feel burdened with more things to do. None of this is going to make God love you more. None of this is going to make you more acceptable to God. That's already been taken care of, already been done. What this does is brings us more fully into God's presence as we follow him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why don't you stand with me? Just let me pray over you, if I could. So Jesus, we come before you and we acknowledge our need. We acknowledge our need, God, in our, our busy, hurried, stressed out lives. An invitation to prayer and, and solitude sounds more of a luxury, maybe even more of a liability. So God, what we're asking for is your grace. It's, it, we're responding to your invitation. It's, it's, it's you that is welcoming us into this, this deeper place of presence, and awareness of you. But we do need your help. We need your help to make space, to know maybe what to dial back on, what, uh, you know, when to shut our laptop, when to turn off our phone so we could really engage with you in your presence. So would you help us this week? Help us practice prayer and solitude. And for those of us especially that, that have a hard time connecting with your presence, God, I, I pray that you would increase our awareness of what you're doing and what you're saying to us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. 
We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.